0: You're listening to the Irish Times. Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later, I'll be talking to Lara Marlowe in Paris about Emmanuel Macron's rallying cry to the citizens of Europe, urging them to embrace what he called the values of progress and to reject nationalist retrenchment. Why has the French president chosen this moment to make this unprecedented call? But first this week, it's to Washington, where the fallout from last week's public testimony to Congress by Donald Trump's former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, shows no sign of abating. Is the net beginning to tighten around the US president? Or is that wishful thinking on the part of a political and media establishment that has been opposed to this presidency from the outset? That's the first question I'm going to put now to our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne, is the net closing around Donald Trump?
1: Well, I think the last few weeks have been a difficult time for Donald Trump. Uh, Firstly, there are reports here in Washington that uh, Robert Mueller, the special counsel who was appointed to investigate uh, alleged uh, links between the Trump administration and Russia and Russian interference in the 2016 election, that that is is wrapping up imminently. Um, So that's one line of pressure, if you like. Um, Secondly, I think the testimony by Michael Cohen last week is significant. Um, Michael Cohen was a, a, the lawyer and fixer for Donald Trump for, for 10 years uh, and right up to uh, the election and in the early days of his presidency. So having public testimony like this was, was extremely powerful and extremely useful, uh, to, particularly to Democrats who are looking at um, investigating Donald Trump further. Uh, now, the the issue obviously with Michael Cohen is you know, his reliability as a witness. This is somebody who has already been convicted uh, and sentenced. He's about to begin a three-year sentence, a prison term in May, uh, and he pleaded guilty to various crimes in uh, the Southern District of New York court. But, you know, this is how how it works uh, in terms of there are various uh, trials throughout history that have uh, depended on the on, on on a witness who's essentially flipped. So I mean, I think ethically, there's always those questions, but um, that that means you can't discount those people's uh, testimony either. Um, so last week, the testimony there was a lot of colour there from Michael Cohen about Donald Trump, the businessman, and Donald. Trump the person. I mean, the headlines from it were that he he labelled him a con man, a cheat, a racist and had some very disturbing anecdotes particularly about um, Donald Trump's alleged uh, racist thinking. But really, the most significant thing that's going to emerge from this is is the kind of detail uh, he revealed about some of the ongoing investigations and suggestions that there may in fact be another investigation by the Southern District of New York into Donald Trump's uh, activities. So that's where uh, Donald Trump's legal difficulties could have increased uh, since last week's testimony by Michael Cohen.
0: Now, Suzanne, since Cohen's testimony, which was to the House Oversight Committee, the pressure on, on Donald Trump has increased, and, and not just on him, but on lots of people connected with him. And that's because of a move by the chairman of another House committee, Jerry Nadler. Just tell us about that move.
1: Yes. Uh, well, the first thing to say is that in addition to the special counsel investigation that's ongoing for the past 22 months, uh, various committees in Congress also have the power to investigate, to do their own investigations, essentially. But significantly, this has become a real threat for Donald Trump since November because Democrats won back control of the House of Representatives, which means they there are now Democrats in the senior positions on the House side, on various committees, and they have become chair people of these committees. Um, So we had a lot of threats from a lot of these senior Democrats that they were going to kind of ramp up the pressure of congressional oversight uh, over Donald Trump. There was a lot of talk about this is the role of Congress, about oversight, and we need to keep the uh, different branches of government uh, in check. Uh, But in the last few days, we have seen a dramatic escalation of this. Uh, And that is, as you mentioned there, the the significant uh, development has been the move by the House Judiciary Committee to essentially uh, demand information documents from more than 80, 81 entities, individuals related to Donald Trump. They are seeking information about his financial and other affairs. um, And it's really a broad, broad sweep of issues. Um, They have written to the White House itself, the FBI. Um, They have written to individuals like people like, former press secretary Sean Spicer, Hope Hicks, Donald Trump's former communications director, Steve Bannon as former advisor. All these people now have been contacted by the committee and also some members of Donald Trump's own family, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump. Uh, So these individuals and entities have now been given two weeks by which they must respond to this request. If not, they could be facing a subpoena uh, request from this committee. Um, we could be looking at a situation where these some of these individuals are obliged to testify publicly uh, in front of the committee so that that is that is a big worry now for Donald Trump that this net is 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 being cast wider if you like
0: and what kind of information is the committee seeking from all of these people
1: well jerry nadler who's the chair of the house judiciary committee he is kind of the key figure here and uh, just to point out the significance here that the house judiciary committee would be the committee that would decide ultimately if if uh, on on impeachment hearings so it, it is significant but jerry nadler uh, have was out in the, uh, in the press over the weekend and he was he was quite strong he said he was looking into um obst- possible obstruction of justice you know, corruption by the president and abuse of power. So, and um, they're they're pretty strong accusations. Um, But what they will probably be looking for are documents related, kind of old ground we know about, related to the links with Russia during the presidential election. You know, did Donald Trump know about this proposed meeting uh, between Russian individuals and his son and others in June 2016, which was. um which they agreed to on the pretext of receiving incriminating information about Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump has denied that. Michael Cohen last week said he knew about that. So those kind of issues they're going to be looking at. But also, um, and this could be the most interesting material, if you like, there's also now a move uh, to, to try and uh, identify if the president was um, in breach of very strict kind of financing and clause in the Constitution uh, in terms of you know, maybe uh, his Trump uh, Hotel Group. What is he? Is there a conflict of interest there between his role as a president and uh, his ownership of various businesses? Has he merged, muddied those those lines? And that could be a constitutional uh, problem for Donald Trump if he is found to do so. For example, just th- this weekend, he tweeted about a golf course in Scotland, saying it was uh, saying it was the best in the world or something, and immediately that set off alarm bells by ethics experts, saying the president of the United States is not supposed to do that. So we've got that aspect of things as well. Um, and then we have got, um, I think what's also interesting is the move to try and get hold of its tax records, its financial affairs. Here the, chair, the Ways and Means Committee is a key committee here. Now they have been slower uh, in terms of their process compared to some of the other committees like the judiciary, for example. But they are looking at ways of trying to compel the president to hand over some tax and other related documents. And that, again, could be very worrying for Donald Trump. Um, We have heard a lot of talk about his relationship with Deutsche Bank, his lender, for many, many years. Uh, And uh, that is definitely a strand of inquiry by some of these committees.
0: And and what kind of powers, Suzanne, does the Judiciary Committee have? I mean, does it have full power to subpoena documents and can it compel witnesses to attend?
1: Well, it seems to be at this stage what the difference seems to be between institutions and individuals, if you like, what is probably going to happen is that a lot of the institutions like um, the White House, uh, the State Department, another committee has written to the State Department, for example, looking up for information about Donald Trump's conversations in person and over the phone with Vladimir Putin, that those kind of institutions will be able to to fight back and resist these requests because they will cite executive privilege in some form of that so so we'll we'll see the white house counsel donald trump has been beefing up his legal team there undoubtedly pushing back against us saying no citing issues of executive privilege and confidentiality of the president and and, and so that could end up in the courts um, but i think they will probably it seems have more luck if you like with individuals um sometimes what happens in these situations is that individuals want to be seen to be cooperating. So you could have somebody like Sean Spicer who discloses, you know, that he was asked, for example, uh, if he could provide documents or diaries of, of his time working with Donald Trump. And, you know, maybe he will decide to do that uh, and cooperate and then be be questioned, particularly if he feels he's nothing to hide. Uh, so we may see uh, see individuals, they will have less legal um, basis uh, to resist this request from information. Uh, from the committee.
0: Now, now Trump, of course, has characterised this kind of move by the Democrats as a witch hunt. And indeed, I saw a tweet from him just before we began this discussion. It had just two words, capital letters, the customary exclamation mark, presidential harassment, which presumably Mm. was a reference to this uh, move by Jerry Nadler. It is quite a wide trawl by Nadler. And in some ways, Mm. he kind of gives credence to the the, uh, idea that it is a witch hunt. I mean, how has he justified the move?
1: Yeah. And there's an argument by some Republicans that over the last few weeks, with the speculation that the Mueller investigation is wrapping up, there's also been a kind of a narrative that take that's has taken hold here in Washington that maybe the Mueller investigation won't contain that much damaging information. That's kind of the, the feeling in the air at the moment. So the allegation is that people like Jerry Nadler are not happy with that outcome, if you like, and as a result are going back over old ground and trying to do their own investigation. I mean, they're covering some
0: of the same ground, aren't they, as Muller?
1: They are. They are covering some of the same ground. But then the issue there is they've every right to do that because since the Clinton impeachment, um, the whole remit of a special council investigation has been has been narrowed. So there was a lot, obviously, 20 years ago, there was a lot of criticism about Kenneth Starr, about his report, about his tactics, etc. And it, the rules essentially have changed since then. So so Mueller will probably be, be presenting some some more a more curtailed version, if you like. Of report than we may have been expecting, and then that will go to the Attorney General, and then he will decide what to release. Um, so you know they have every right, and and essentially, if you, if you look back at Nixon, for example, you know investigations by by congressional committees were happening all the time, uh, you know over Watergate. So so they do have a lot of power. Um, here. So, uh, but they have been accused of essentially, you know, using this as a pretext to just get at the president to incriminate him. Um, and with a lot of strong statements by uh, people like uh, senior Repo- Republicans in Congress who really are backing Donald Trump on this. Um, we had like Kevin McCarthy. He's the House Minority Leader, the top Republican essentially in the House of Representatives, and he's he 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 at the weekend was very strong, and he he accused Jerry Nadler of wanting to impeach the president the day that he won the election, and um, he, he, you know essentially of shifting the goalposts. So I think that is uh, that is a, is a strong point by Republicans. And but Democrats know are, are are you know are well aware of this. Jerry Nadler did say at the weekend, you know, we are not nowhere near impeachment. We just want to investigate, and they're very very aware again of the Clinton lessons. Um, the public essentially after the Clinton impeachment, really Republicans suffered electorally because the. The public were not behind that impeachment uh, trial essentially so uh democrats are worried that if they if they push too hard they will lose the support of the public on this so they're trying to kind of give the impression that they're going slowly that they're going through this methodically um and and trying to uh, argue that they're not rushing to judgment they're going to wait until these investigations play out but for example on the house intelligence committee another important committee that had opened an investigation into issues around Russian interference, et cetera, last year. And that investigation ended uh, without any negative findings. Now, Adam Schiff, the new Democratic chairman, has said, actually, we're going to reopen that now. So those kind of moves uh, have been strongly criticised by Republicans Republicans in the House and kind of feed into this narrative of a witch hunt against Donald Trump.
0: So is this new level of scrutiny now being brought by the Democrats now that they've won control of the House, is this what we can expect, you know, for the remainder, really, of Trump's uh, presidency?
1: Yeah, I think so, and I, I think it, it's it's the fact that it's kind of the, the the ball of string, you know, where does this end? And even I think the strategy is to get a drip drip of information about to keep this pressure on Donald Trump scrutiny over the tax affairs, uh, and and of course a lot of the senior p- figures on these committees know a lot more than the public do. They get classified intelligence briefings. They have had private briefings by key witnesses. Um, they probably know more than the public do about the Mueller report. So, you know, we, do, we don't, we're, we're working in a bit of a vacuum in terms of why they are pushing this now. Do they know that the Mueller report's coming out in the next two weeks, for example, and they want to get their own kind of spin, if you like, out on this in advance? Um, and then, and the other thing to keep in mind, and, and again, this is, this is due to the fallout from the Michael Cohen testimony, is arguably what's more worrying for Donald Trump will be the other investigations that are now going on or or reports of them in New York. Uh, For example, the Southern District of New York, um, there's been reports that it's looking at the activities of the Trump charity, for example. Um, And that could spell difficulty for Donald Trump because essentially the reality is that the president is protected while he's president. He cannot be indicted, although some people argue that that's that's arguable, but, but, but ultimately he can't be indicted. The only way he can be removed from office is impeachment. Impeachment needs to be decided by Congress and the Democrats only have control of the House, not the Senate. An impeachment trial would happen in the Senate. So you would have to see a number of Republicans switching sides, if you like, and and going against Donald Trump. So I think by dripping this information out, uh, the House Democrats are hoping to to lay that groundwork that in case if you do get to an impeachment situation, that there is enough incriminating evidence that some Republicans feel that they've no choice but to go with Democrats um, and and ultimately maybe impeach the president.
0: And is the the suggestion there that he, even if he doesn't face legal jeopardy while he's in office, that these things are kind of building up for when he eventually leaves office?
1: Exactly. So that's why the Southern District of, of New York, I mean, they can they can keep going on this forever. They they have got they're looking into a lot of the tax affairs, the Trump administration, et cetera, um, uh, separately. And that that is going to be a big problem for Donald Trump, whatever happens with the Mueller investigation. Uh, because like if, if we were to believe the the insinuations at the moment, as I said, there doesn't seem to be that much in the Mueller investigation. There may be not enough to lead to impeachment. There may be an evidence that he is he's indicted more than 30 people. But that's more over lying about what they knew about Russia rather than uh, any, so far anyway, any indication that they actively conspired and colluded with Russian individuals to change the election. Um, So he could be on safer ground there. But again, the whole tax financial issues may be the problem. Uh, for Donald Trump ultimately uh, um, and, and his family too I mean, he's got the power to pardon people but at, and another side point if you like is it's significant that Ivanka Trump hasn't been subpoenaed or, or sorry not subpoenaed but hasn't been contacted by this committee and there's been a lot of talk here that maybe they feel that the optics of that wouldn't work in Democrats favour the idea of questioning the president's daughter publicly for example so it's significantly it's just the two sons uh, that have been contacted at this point by the committee.
0: OK, so certainly some very interesting uh, weeks and months ahead. Suzanne, thanks for that. That was Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent. It's to Paris now, and Lara Marlowe joins me from there to talk about that extraordinary call by Emmanuel Macron for a European renaissance in an open letter published in Ireland today, Tuesday, by the Irish Times and by newspapers in all other 27 member states, including the UK. Never since the Second World War Rob Macron, has Europe been as essential, yet never has Europe been in so much danger? Lara, why has the French president chosen this moment to make this urgent appeal?
2: I think he saw a window of opportunity. Um, Brexit is is supposed to happen three weeks from now. Uh, There's an EU summit coming up on, I think it's the 21st of March. There are also European parliamentary elections happening in late May. And Macron, this is being seen here as the launching of his um, European election campaigns. But it, it just was the right time for him to do it. He's also winding up his great national debate, uh, which is, that's his, his name for it, which was meant to be his answer to the, the gilets jaunes um, protest crisis. And that on March 15th. So he'll be busy uh, dealing with the consequences of the great debate and parsing the results and making speeches and so on. So this was just good timing for him. And he also wants to stake his claim to be the leader of of liberal Democrats in in Europe. And um, this is something he had lost, really, in recent months because of the gilets jaunes crisis, but also because after his great uh, Sorbonne speech in September of 2017, things all went, went wrong for him. Uh, the German election was, was immediately afterwards, and it took Angela Merkel six months to form a government. Um, the elections in Italy ag- exactly a year ago brought uh, populists and nationalists to power, and Macron didn't get along with them at all and then he had this this Jean crisis so he 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 was really um hampered thwarted in what he was trying to do and then with the riots almost every week for the last, um, some, I think it's 15 weeks now, uh, Macron really lost a lot of his prestige in Europe because the other leaders could look and say, well, look, this guy is so unpopular in his own country, why should we listen to him? Uh, he did not go to the Munich Security Conference um, recently. And it was Angela Merkel who stood up to Vice President uh, Mike Pence and got really loud applause. And uh, Le Monde is pointing out this afternoon, nobody missed Macron at all. So I think he wants to reclaim that role which he had staked out for himself early in his term of office.
0: And when he said Europe has never been in so much danger, what did he mean?
2: He's talking about uh, what he he called it nationalist retrenchment in his letter. But what he means is is Brexit, to begin with. He said that, that Brexit... Brexit was a symbol of the crisis of Europe, but he's he's talking about the populism and the the inward-looking tendency, the the, the desire to re-establish national borders, uh, to to pull out of Europe, uh, the anti the, the euro skepticism, but especially people like Viktor Orban in Hungary. Um, Matteo Salvini in Italy, and more than all the rest, uh, Marine Le Pen uh, here in France. That's what he's talking about. He sees that the European project is in danger because people don't really support it. People don't understand it anymore. They've grown apathetic. And they're very tempted by this uh, often hateful and negative rhetoric. Uh, He says the nationalists, he he calls them anger mongers, Uh, he, he says they use fake news, they promise anything and everything, and, and, but they don't really have any answers. Um, and I think he's right in that. They don't. Um, if you look at the, the mess that is Britain right now with the Brexit uh, uh, sort of standstill, with we, we're not, nobody is sure how it's going to play out, um, Macron is hoping that this will be a lesson to people and that they will not want to follow that path of, of pulling inward and, and uh, rejecting Europe.
0: And he talked a lot in the letter about European values and, and the values of progress and so on. And Did he spell out what he means by these terms? Uh,
2: the, the part of the letter about progress was really about um, social policies, about social welfare. And he's being accused today by the, the Socialist Party in particular, with the, the more abundant Socialist Party, it should be said, of, of hypocrisy on this. And the, the line on the left in France is that Macron has uh, really diminished social protection in France. So how dare he talk about establishing broader social protection in Europe? But I think that that is a kind of balance he's trying to find, because France has the most generous um, social protection in Europe. And he's, he's trying to lessen it in France, but increase it elsewhere. He talks about workers' rights, um, the fact that people must get the same pay for the same work uh, in the same place. This is something that he has established with his reform of the detached workers um, uh, directive in in the EU, and he wants to establish a minimum wage uh, throughout Europe. He says it can be adapted to the specific localities, to, to different situations. But he he wants he, he reminds his readers that uh, Europe is the place that invented social security, that invented the welfare state. And he says that Europe must—this is, this is progress, and uh, Europe must come back to this. It cannot just be a race to the bottom, to the lowest common denominator. Um, he says we need convergence, not competition. In other words, we need our social protection to be more uh, regular throughout the EU, not uh, to undercut each other with, with lower wages and, and less social protection.
0: And, of course, it's sad, Lara, that all politics is local. Now, in the letter, um, on the face of it, he's speaking directly to to the citizens of Europe. But um, is he really directing his message to people at home?
2: I think it's both. Um, It's sort of ironic or or sad, perhaps, that his letter has not been that well received in in France. Um, The ecologists say he's a, a hypocrite to... Uh, call for a European a climate bank that would finance the transition uh, to clean energy. They say that he hasn't uh, kept his pledges uh, to to fight global warming in France. Um, the, the right on the far right, the Les Républicains, the conservatives, and, and Marine Le Pen's Rassemblement National, uh, say there was not enough on immigration. That he he's totally underestimated the threat of mass migration into France, and they they, they fault him for not mentioning Islamism. Uh, I saw the only foreign country, or, I mean non French company within Europe, that um, approved of. The, of his letter was Belgium. Uh, I don't know how far that will get him. Uh, when he made his big, his first big initiative at the Sorbonne, there was, I'm afraid, a resounding silence. And Macron had really hoped he could bring the Germans along, and the Germans have been very, very slow to usually what he does is he just fights and fights and he keeps at it, and eventually some watered-down form of his proposal uh, comes to fruition. And I think that's what he's going to do with the the concrete proposals that he made in this letter. Uh, But he, he... Wrote it with a very broad uh, brush. Uh, last time in the past, he talked a lot about the Eurozone, about uh, a, a budget for the Eurozone, and a, fine, a minister for the Eurozone, and so on. And he, he stayed away from that this time. That um, cre- ended up with the Hanseatic League, which was opposing those policies. So he's trying to be as consensual as possible, and he, he's trying to. Basically, get people excited about Europe again. He says that um, Europe has been seen by too many people as a soulless market. And he says it, it represents peace. It represents prosperity. We've lost sight of this. It also represents solidarity, the, the, the fact, social solidarity and solidarity in, in defense. Uh, and in a way, he, this is all happening at an opportune time, because This is a time when China is about to become the biggest economy in the world, when it's um, ahead in the race to establish the the 5G communication systems, and and everyone feels that China is is unfair competition. Uh, Vladimir Putin is accused of interfering in elections in France and the U.S. and who knows elsewhere. Um, And Donald Trump certainly is not seen as being... Um, favourable to to, to to Europe. So uh, Macron sees Europe in a very hostile international environment and he's saying to the Europeans, you have to band together. We are stronger together than we are each individually. We don't have the means individually to stand up to these threats.
0: And has the reaction in France so far, Lara, been uniformly negative? I mean, is there, are, are people no. of a pro-EU disposition not sort of proud to see their, their president go out there and fight for, you know, liberal values?
2: Well, certainly La République En Marche, Macron's party, obviously supports him totally. And, and they are a very pro-EU party, and, and commentators from his party have been all over television and radio saying how great this is and, and how much they love Europe. Um, the The support, the little support that he is getting, is coming from sort of... Uh, renegades, you might call them, from Les Républicains, from the, the, the former UMP, the, the, the great conservative party of France, which has ruled France for from, from much of the last 50, 60 years. And he, uh, he got actually quite a catch. Jean-Pierre Raffarin, who is a former prime minister, who was Jacques Chirac's prime minister, uh, came out after the letter was published and said, this is great, this is the program I want to see on Europe, and I am supporting Emmanuel Macron. And now there's talk about Les Républicains may uh, expel Raffarin from the party and so on. And um, uh, Jean-François Copé, who is another um, former leader of Les Républicains, has also come out in support of Macron. So he's getting the sort of centre-right support. Um, but the others, he, he's definitely not getting any support from the far right or the far left.
0: And you mentioned there, Lara, he's, he's the grand, grand tour of the nation that, that he undertook. Um, in light of the Gilets jaunes protests. And he said he'd go around and listen to people's grievances. Um, how has that gone for him? Has it done anything for his uh, his ab- approval ratings?
2: Yes, um, it's helped his uh, approval rates immensely. And I must say, it's it's very impressive to see this guy. But he, he, he goes to these prefectures or town halls in, in the obscure corners of France And he sits down with um, in the the first one was 600 mayors. Some of the groups have groups have been much smaller. And he talks to them, and he just talks uh, endlessly. The the first one lasted for seven hours. Um, Some have gone five, six hours. And at the end of the session, he's got his shirt sleeves rolled up. And um, the the first session, it was in January, uh, the mayors were very hostile in the beginning. They were insulting him. And at the end of it, they all stood up and gave him an, an ovation, and they applauded him. And he, he really has managed, maybe it's the inspiration of desperation, but he's managed to turn a lot of uh, opinion around, not totally, I mean, his ratings aren't that great, but he's getting up in the in the mid-30s now in, in opinion poll, approval ratings, sort of. There was one poll, I think, yesterday, 36, highest I saw was 39 percent, but that's where he was before the Gilets Jaunes crisis started, uh, but that's... Already relatively low because of the Benalla scandal. You remember the bodyguard who beat up protesters. So, but he, he, but he's on the rise, uh, whereas the gilets jaunes are are falling uh, very dramatically. And a majority of French people want them to stop. That's what all the polls show now. So I think that the national debate, um, contrary to what people expected, a lot of people thought it would just be a, a damp squib. It, it does; it has had an effect, and it, it is working. Now the the, the challenge will be uh, when it ends on March 15th. Can he retain uh, that popularity? Also, there are school holidays going on now. It's been relatively quiet. The numbers in the, of protesters are down to uh, it was 39,000 last weekend when all the children come back from their school holidays and their parents with them, will suddenly there be another burst of energy in the Gilles Jaunes. It's unpredictable, but at the moment, uh, the situation is looking up for Macron, and this letter to the Europeans is part of it. He's trying to seize the moment.
0: And and that letter, Lara, it it, it is unprecedented, I think, and it's the first time a new head of state has issued... Such an appeal to the peoples of Europe in their own languages. Um, in doing that, he has kind of essentially gone over the heads of government leaders all over Europe. Now you mentioned the positive response in, in in Belgium, but what do you think leaders would think of the idea, really, of this? You know, this guy, president of his own country, then making this direct appeal to their citizens.
2: It will vary a a great deal, depending on the countries. Um, I'm hoping to get some kind of response from, actually, the Irish government. I have put in calls to the Taoiseach and Tanisha's office. Uh, If the experience last time is anything to judge by, I think most of them will just wait and see. Um, certainly, the, the Macron administration likes Mark Rutte, the prime minister of the Netherlands. Uh, he made a speech in Zurich in February, the, the Churchill lecture, in which he talked about the necessity of Europe projecting power and Europe you know, playing an important role on the international stage. And this is exactly the sort of thing that Macron says. Uh, I think that there will be things that they like and things they don't like. Um, for Ireland, obviously, defense cooperation is always a bit delicate because of Ireland's neutrality. And Macron is very, very keen on, on forging ahead with that. Um, I think that for liberal economies, again, like Ireland's, uh, the push for social policy convergence is always scares people a bit. Um, and then there, there are a lot of governments who just don't like anything that they think smacks of, of federalism. And I, I put it to Macron's advisors in a briefing yesterday at the Élysée that um, people are, think that he's a federalist and they don't like it. And they said he never, ever uses the word. He never talks about federations or, or he doesn't want a, a European government per se. Uh, but when he talks about convergence and integration... I think people hear federalism, and most of the governments in the EU are allergic to that. I was very struck at, uh, actually, last week in a press conference with Angela Merkel, uh, he talked about the need for more convergence in policies, and and Merkel didn't endorse that. Um, and, And I think the French are very often alone in wanting that, in wanting everyone to have the same taxation policies, the same social policies. Uh, and so on. They, they, they have always wanted a Europe in the image of France. And I, I think that is, is still there under the surface.
0: And the $6 million question, Lara, do you think this intervention by Macron will have any lasting impact? Will we look back on this in the future as a significant moment or will it just be forgotten?
2: Uh, I, th- I certainly hope so. I mean, his, his most immediate objective is to slow or stop the rise of of the populist nationalist. And um, if one has to choose between Orban, Salvini, Le Pen, and Macron, for for me, there's not really a a choice there. And, And I think that if other governments will support him, perhaps more than they have in the past, and again, he has He's not throwing this out as a a set plan that has to be followed word for word. What he's saying is, I want a debate. He talks about a conference, I think, at the end of the year of of the Europeans uh, to to make, I hate the old cliche, but a roadmap. He wants a roadmap for Europe. Um, and, And I think that's good, you know, because Europe is has been in the doldrums. Uh, Europe, uh, Brexit does hurt uh, to have a, a member leave the union like that. Obviously, it, it, it's very, very bad for, for the EU. And maybe this could be a turning point. Um, I suspect it'll be, it won't be that clear cut. It'll be a bit like the Sorban initiative, where people will remember it. Uh, and he won't get all that he wants out of it. But he, he's willing to compromise. He, he will take what he can get. Um, and it's, it's definitely a good thing that somebody is offering an alternative to uh, nationalist retrenchment, as Macron calls it.
0: OK, Lara, well, on that optimistic note, we'll leave you there. Thanks for that. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.